Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm sitting here with another Mark, Mark Strauss. Um, he's an art curator, he's a poet, um, and a medical oncologist for a good part of, part of his life. And he wrote a book called The One-Legged Mongoose, uh, Secrets, Legacy, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so I, I was going to start right off. Where did the title come from? That's what really uh, piqued my interest when I saw it slide across my desk. About three quarters of the way into this memoir, which takes place over the years, I was 10 to 12, and the title of the chapter is One-Legged Mongoose. And um, it, it's a really important chapter in the book. I'll talk about it whenever you're ready. Yeah, dive right in. I'm curious of the story behind it. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I really wanted this title. The publisher was kind of against it for a while. And then after it came out, somebody said, you know how lucky you are? Nobody's ever used that title before. So if you Google it, you're going to get it first. Nice. Yeah. So in this book narrated by the kid, we're about a year and a half into the two years. And I was commuting to this new school four hours a day. And um, it, it was a totally different kind of experience, different kind of school. And we're headed towards winter, I'm 11. And my mother thought I should join the Boy Scouts, which I couldn't understand why. I had no time left in my life. And um, in order to join the Boy Scouts, we had to go out on a weekend camping trip. So off we went and we went to Long Island to uh, Suffolk County, and we went to this park that was freezing cold. Mm -hmm. So we get there and uh, they pitch the tents, they do the cookout. And during the cookout, there are three scout leaders. One of them says, you know, boys, we're really lucky that we got to come to this park this year because the park's been closed for at least six years because a one-legged mongoose has roamed the park, half mongoose, half human, and it's killed a number of people over the years. And only one person has ever survived to tell the story. And then I saw the other Boy Scouts, one of them peed in their pants. And, <laughs> and he says, but... You know, we're Boy Scouts. We should go out and look for it just to be sure. Raise your hand if you're willing to go. And, you know, of course, one kid puts his hand. Nobody wants to put their hand up. But one by one, they all do. And then finally, I didn't. And the scout man says, I see only one person isn't ready to go out and find the mongoose. I said, okay, I'll go. And I go with one of the scout leaders who had been uh, really difficult that afternoon with me. And um, we didn't like each other. And we get to this trail, there's four kids. And he said, who wants to volunteer to go down the end of the trail and find the mongoose? And I said, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's the name of this, this, uh, mongoose of course this mythical creature that was used to haze us this coming of age ridiculous thing yeah yeah i really want to go deeper into that so uh you know as we're getting to know each other i'm a psychotherapist in boulder colorado and i work exclusively with men and a lot of things that we talk about and work on is coming of age initiation you know this idea of growing up where a lot of people don't especially in my generation, I'd be curious if it was different in the 1950s, but in my generation, we don't really have that. 
you know, there's a lot of older people that are still boys in a lot of ways. So yeah. I, I'm curious your thoughts around coming of age. What does that mean to you? Going from boy you know, to man. You're a professional when you're that age, you don't know, you know, you're just getting through it. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have a clue if you're happy. Uh, it is coming of age because so much of what's happening when you're 10 to 12 is brand new. And you're absorbing the world and you're learning from your family, you're learning from people around you. And one of the reasons this book is narrated by the kid is because that's the way I could tell the story authentically because I had total recall once I was in the kid's head. When I made any attempt to write it at this age, I know too much. And my memory, it's, it's interesting. I couldn't remember it nearly the same age. And, and, and by the time you get to be older, you may change what you thought of those formative years. But I lived through a very, very tough two years. And I was, uh, you know, extremely perceptive, independent kid. So they were formative. Uh, the afternoon before we went out on this mongoose hunt, <laughs> which is like, why would we go there if there was such an animal? Um, this, this one scout leader really obviously hazed me badly. And um, we had to learn how to handle an ax. Mm-hmm. So he asked me, well, let's see you throw an ax into this tree. And I kind of take this thing out and I kind of aim it and I get the ax right in the middle of the tree. And then he says to all the other scouts, what did Mark do wrong? I don't know what I did wrong. I got the damn ax in the middle of the tree. And everybody shrugs. They don't know. Finally, one kid says, I think you're not allowed to throw an ax. And then the guy said, exactly. And Mark obviously didn't read the handbook and he's not cut out to be a scout and you'll never be a scout. And I don't know why you even came here. And then he started in with, I guess you people never learned how to handle things like this. And of course, you know, that, that was commenting on my religion. Mm -hmm. Ooh, brutal time. It was brutal. And um, I was in an age when I went to college and I pledged a fraternity. Mm -hmm. The hazing was really lethal. Things that would never rationally be permitted today. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different time. Yeah. Can you weave a little bit of a story for the listeners of what was going on, you know, sociopolitically in the 1950s? You know, you mentioned your religion. I'm assuming you're talking about being Jewish. I'm, I'm also Jewish, just so you know. Um, so any kind of connection there? What was going I, on? Um, it, it was a very different time because the book opens up in 1953. Mm-hmm. We're eight years after the Holocaust. And today, you know, the last of the Holocaust survivors are almost gone. You know, there's so few left and anybody who has a firsthand memory of it is almost gone. Yeah. But my dad came to the U.S. He got out before the Holocaust. Where he was from is now the Ukraine, Western Ukraine near Kviv. And he endured horrendous anti-Semitism. And he got out as an impoverished kid and came to New York at age 15 and went to work 16 hours a day. He was a very proud guy, <clears throat> and he opened, by the time he was in his late 20s, he opened the textile store in the Lower East Side of New York, where I started working from the age of five, something that a lot of kids don't do today. You see that in immigrant communities sometimes. But my father's life was inextricably entwined with the Holocaust. And there was a moment in this book where I tell the story, I'm sitting with him in our home and he's got some book and he opens it and he's staring at this page 
and I'm looking at it. And this book is a bunch of teenage kids. And I guess I began to understand there must have been all Jewish kids in this town. It was in Poland between the war and the Ukraine. And he points to this picture and he just said, all dead, all dead. Every kid in that picture, dead. And my dad was um, incredibly knowledgeable about politics. So we were three kids. I was the one that went to work with him. I loved every minute of it. I worked there as often as I could until I graduated medical school. On the way to work, he would be listening to political commentary on radio and he'd be yelling at the windshield. <laughs> I knew every opinion. He knew the name of every senator in the United States. When the vote came up in the UN, I was five years old for Israel to be a state. My dad knew what he thought every country was going to vote. It was so important to him. But this was a time Eisenhower was president. And we're talking about the beginning of the Joseph McCarthy hearings. Mm -hmm. So McCarthy yeah. was a junior senator from Wisconsin. He was a drunk and he was a lowlife. And he headed the subcommittee. And from the subcommittee, he started red baiting. He went after people and called them communists. And he particularly went after writers and scientists. Mm -hmm. He went after people in Hollywood. He went after Robert Oppenheimer. And once you were on the hot seat in front of the committee, the McCarthy hearings, you lost your job. You got ostracized. Whether you had ever gone to a communist meeting once in your life. And, and they were legendary stories. And it was totally anti-Semitic, but no one, no one talked against McCarthy for a long time. Not Eisenhower, not any senator in the United States, until a reporter on CBS, Edward R. Murrow, went after him. And the dominoes fell. And within months, McCarthy was in front of a hearing. And he was, he left and he died shortly after as an alcoholic. But the damage he did certainly resonates with me with some things today. Yeah, I think it's something that trickles out into our culture even now, right? I mean, you see it kind of resurfacing with, you know, cancel culture and, you know, just really blacklisting people for having views of being different, right, I, from where we're at. I, I think it's very much the same. Yeah, I've read the report of a tenured professor who was pushed out of Princeton recently. You know, this cancel culture. I think there's so much harm on both sides of this argument. Mm -hmm. And they're expecting faculty to toe the line. And, you know, God forbid you say something that's misinterpreted. You're done for. Exactly. So much is taken out of context, right? It's like little snippets or headlines that don't have the context of what's actually being said or what the person even believes or thinks. My, my granddaughter, my oldest grandchild, graduated Harvard a week or two ago. And she's a spectacular girl, a great student. And um, they just wrote this rabid anti-Israel piece. Mm -hmm in the Harvard Crimson. And, you know, she, she said, you almost can't take it there anymore. You know, you, you just have to toe the line with, with some of this ridiculous thing. And some of the kids she know who signed on to this or in some school's faculty that signed on to it. And then, of course, I mean, it's a whole different story. You know, people have all different opinions, but the January 6th hearings just started. 
and they're hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to listen to it. But, you know, no matter where you stand, we came awful close for this democracy to be pulled down. It was a scary day. Yeah. And I, and, and I have to say, it's my opinion that it is a big lie. And it's, it's, it's no different than what McCarthy was getting away with. Mm-hmm. So both sides of the political spectrum, I see some of the same. Yeah, I think it's a really important message for our listeners to hear is that the history is cyclical. And we're kind of coming back to this divisive era. Not to say one side is right or wrong, but I mean, my belief is that the extremes of both sides are both incredibly aggressive, right? And they're just bashing against each other. You, you and I are agreeing. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you could love Trump. You almost don't want to say his name. It's, <laughs> it's like Voldemort. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was the entire news cycle for over four years. Yeah. But I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I didn't know him personally. I know a lot of people who know him well. Mm-hmm. You know, he was here in New York. He, you know, people really know him. One of my good friends did a tremendous amount of his legal work. Mm-hmm. Um, we know him very differently in New York. Mm-hmm. And you know, this whole, like, I don't care if people think Biden's the worst president on the planet. This whole thing with January 6th was totally dangerous mm-hmm. and wrong. Mm-hmm. So, and then we have this cancel culture, just as bad as McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, great conversation so far. We're going to move to our first commercial break. And when we come back, I want to hear more about your story, more about how it influenced you to become the man that you are today, and some of the views uh, you know that you have on, on what's going on in the art world specifically. There's a lot of uh, you a lot of wisdom in you, so I'm excited to hear more and learn more of your story. So Thank for those you. listening, um, hang in tight, and I'll catch you on the other side of the commercials. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. 
To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Mark Strauss, and we're just talking about what life was like in the 50s and how history seems to repeat itself around the McCarthy hearings, the fear, the divisiveness. Um, I want to bring us back to the book, The One-Legged Mongoose. You anchored it around two years of your life, between the ages of 10 to 12. Can you let the listeners know what was behind that choice, what was going on during those years? It, it opens up just after I turned 10 years old. And I, my father, who was a pretty quiet guy, announces to me that come September, you and your younger brother are switching schools. You're going to be going to this ultra-religious Jewish school in Queens. We lived out in Long Island. And the commute was four hours a day. And I was wow. going to take my kid brother. And I bought our own train tickets. I dropped them off at his school, and then my annex was a couple miles away. So I had a pretty tough day, but I couldn't understand why I was going to this ultra-religious school. We weren't religious. I really didn't know Hebrew, and I was going to be dropped into studying Talmud three and a half hours a day in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was headed towards a totally foreign world. What my dad didn't know, and one of the big secrets in my life, I, I think nobody knew really, is I was already a veteran street fighter. And my dad had his own store. He was an immigrant. And he made a little money. And like a lot of immigrants, they wanted to buy a house. And people were flooding to Long Island. Long Island was booming. So he bought a little house in West Hempstead and then he went to work. It was rabidly anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And uh, he couldn't have known that. And my kid brother, uh, three years younger, he was the kind of kid that bullies always find. He was small and scared and fearful about everything. And I would find out who had ever hit him. And then I'd go find that kid and beat the shit out of him. And after a few years, I mean, I had so many fist fights, I can't even count them. And I just expected it after a while. Like a new kid moved in, they would just go have a fight until they'll never want to fight me again. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, Queens is going to be much worse. <laughs> what the heck's going to happen? It's dangerous. So the book opens up, I have to go to a Hebrew lesson to get ready to go to a school I don't want to go to. And um, it was a very strange place. And of course, I was to find some real commonality there. I was to find kids who were smart. And that was helpful to me. I was ignored in the public school I was in. I was a very, very advanced reader. And some of the teachers just didn't want to deal with me. But I got to the school and I was still used to my other life. So I cut about half the classes. I was out on the streets playing handball half the time. And, and this is the strange secret life. Yeah, so you had this double life of like good student and then brawler, <laughs> street level brawler. Only a good student if the teacher cared about me. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I disappear. So, so was the decision on your father? Was he seeing the anti-Semitism too and wanted to put you in a school that, you know, celebrated Jewish culture that was anchored in it? You know, when I wrote the book, the editor was reading it and said, "What was your father thinking? What What was his reason?" I said, "My dad never said, but I I did know." Mm -hmm. So finally, I wrote in the book what I thought happened. 
I was with him a couple of times. We were at the synagogue at Hempstead. And his older friends, I was in these conversations where they're saying, you know, my kid got turned down to law school. He got turned down to medical school. Well, my kid's dropping out of college, these other Jewish immigrants. I think my dad was beginning to realize that um, whatever, what, what was his aspiration? He wanted, he wanted a different life in America. He wanted his family to be professionals. I think he wanted his boys to become doctors. And he saw that as maybe it wasn't going to happen from this town. He didn't know about the rest of it. And then he saw some of his friends where their kids were leaving Judaism. So it all got coupled and they got this brainstorm that we should go to the school. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Well, yeah, preserve the culture, give you guys the best chance of success, which makes yeah. sense, right? As an immigrant family, you want to really anchor in America, right? And being a professional is a great way to do it. And the other secret in the book, which, you know, I, it's hard to imagine. My, I think my dad didn't know. My mother was an extraordinarily volatile human being. Mm. I had an older sister, younger brother, and she beat the hell out of me relentlessly from before the age of two. I mean, really tough, tough beatings. And she'd go off the handle and very often a switch would be pulled and then I knew it was coming. And so the book opens up a little ways into the book. We're introduced to one of these horrendous beatings. And by then I was starting to get athletic and strong and I was a fighter. And there, there, there was almost a sense of inevitability that it was just part of my life. And as we're heading towards the end of the book, I'm, finish, I'm finishing my second year in the school. And we're seeing there's some really good things for me in the school and kids I really like. And a principal who obviously understood me. Um, if I had any chance, the beatings had to stop. And I needed a way to stop it. And we're faced with that at the end of the book. Wow, that sounds like a really powerful segment to overcome that and stand up. You know, it, it was strange because we see this in so many kids who undergo terrible things. And it happens repeatedly and repeatedly, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, kids getting raped and the horrible things. Look what, look what the athletes in Penn State went through when they were much older or the gymnasts and went on and on. And here, there was this, so many times I began to realize I could, I could stop it. I didn't know how yet mm -hmm. until it just had to stop. Yeah, so I'm so curious, right, as a psychotherapist, how did that childhood, how these two years impact you growing up? Because they're in such formative parts of your life, right? I mean, 10 to 12, like you said, that's when you're learning and growing so much. I think that um, it impacted my younger brother, the kid who got picked on. He came close to one terrible beating. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in the middle and told my mother I had done what he was accused of doing. And he was there and watched her beat the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. Scroll ahead many years, about 20 years ago, okay, we're in our 50s. I asked my older sister, my brother, to go to counseling with us, three kids together. We're all grown up. And I said, we had this volatile mother. I was the only one who got beaten, but you were both there. I said, I believe you've both suffered from it in different ways than me. And we go to this remarkable counselor in New York City, and we're getting through the first session, 
And my brother and sister say, well, this has nothing to do with us anymore. I don't know why we're here. You know, I'm not going to come back. They agree to one more session. We go back and we're 10 minutes in. And my sister already said, I'm never coming back. It's just not part of my life. And my brother, all of a sudden, tells the story, which is in my book, of the time he was going to get beaten for breaking a vacuum cleaner bag. Mm-hmm. He told the story exactly how it happened. Mm-hmm. Here the man's a famous scientist saying it doesn't affect him. He's crying his eyes out yeah. in this office. Yeah. He was on the floor. I can't even believe he saw all of it or remember it that accurately. Mm-hmm. It affects all of us. And um, I grew up being too much of a fighter about too many things. Uh, not so much fist fights, but too many things that didn't need to provoke me quite the way it did. I have two children, five grandchildren. I never, I never hit my kid. I think I would have vomited if I came close. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it, it would have made me physically ill to even come close to something like that. And I'm lucky to have a close relationship with all of them. And they all knew my mother. And they knew very little about the story. I didn't think, I didn't think my kids knew. And then my daughter graduates law school and becomes an assistant DA in the Bronx, prosecuting people who harm kids. Mm-hmm. She writes a, a book that did well called Bronx DA. And that's when I read in her book that she actually was told this happened. And even though she was close enough to my mother, part of the reason that she took on this job in her life is not to let it happen again. Yeah, so it did impact her, right? It was a a key factor of her life and her decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, it's something that I'm sure you've certainly heard about, but I'm just saying for our listeners is this idea of intergenerational trauma, right? That trauma can be passed down from generation to generation in the form of, of abuse or in the form of, you know, uh, repeating behaviors, things like that, substance abuse. And the population that it was studied on was the American Jewish population, right? Starting at the Holocaust as like the initial trauma event and seeing how it trickles down. I can't help but think about that when I hear your story and how close the Holocaust touched your family. In my Hebrew school, now I start there at age 10. I wound up going to the Hebrew yeshiva in high school. It's another ridiculous story. <laughs> but at, at any rate, so now I'm in these religious schools till I finish high school. No teacher ever discussed the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. No assembly. No one would talk about it. As as much as we think today this is impossible, there was no university Holocaust study in the United States, probably until the late 70s. Mm -hmm. No one wanted to talk about it. And it's Jews who didn't want to talk about it as much as anybody else. Right. It's so painful. I mean, to go back there is brutal, intense. I, um, one of the dynamic things that went a long way to helping the mindset of this very immigrant community was Israel. And Israel was in so many of these wars. You know, the first war, it's up against a population 200 times larger. And scroll ahead to the Six Day War. In 1967, Israel's up against six or seven countries. And it wins in six days. And everybody's paying attention to the extraordinary ability of this little country to fight, including today. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows all these stories about the Mossad today and the Israel military. 
it was a very big deal in the world Jewish community. And I have heard again and again these horrible anti-Semitic things. Well, Jews going to their death in the camps, they could have fought back. And they carried the trauma saying, it's partly your fault, you died. Right, there's I mean, some kind of personal weakness or something, which is I re- ridiculous. I resented that tremendously. Yeah. And if you wanted me to be a fist fighter, you only had to come close to saying that. Right. You say that and you're knuckling up right away. Of course, you're right? You're defending to, your people, you're defending your you're family. Going, you're going down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you've... Um, been to Israel recently. I was there, you know, three or four years ago and went to the Holocaust Museum um, in Jerusalem. And it's a it's a powerful thing. Have you seen Yad that? Vashem. Yad Vashem. Yeah, yeah. Where they have in the end, they have that giant pit. Um, that's just a hole in the ground to show like what we've lost. It has the um, the candles of remembrance burning that's refracted, you know, like six million times. It's a powerful installation. I took my we took my grandson who was 16. He had a very hard time getting through. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not a fun museum. I mean, it's so cold. Everything's concrete. There's nowhere to sit. It's just you're seeing few brutal photos of people that you know look like you and me going through horrific things. I mean, it was I, I was crying by the end of it. I was in tears um, over that hole to. at the end. Yeah, yeah, I was I was crying and I was horribly angry. Yeah, and if you go to the one in Washington, for me the most moving thing is just to sit on the steps and listen to Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. It, listening to their stories is an extraordinary experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty powerful to, to listen to people or watch videos that, that were there and to hear their story. Um, it's, it's something that would, still is so recent in history. Well, I think Russia is doing that to the Ukraine today mm-hmm. to the extent possible. They're bombing people indiscriminately. They're bombing hospitals. They're bombing schools. And, you know, forget that Ukraine was the worst place in all Europe for Jews back then. But what the Ukrainians are living through is not their fault. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, and here's Putin saying they're trying to root out Nazism. I know it's, it's very wild. Well, we have to move to our final commercial break here. Um, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some stories of the books um, about, I want to hear about your career as a, as an art um, uh, dealer and, and uh, curator. And uh, yes, yeah, been great having you on the show so far. So if you're listening, thanks for tuning in and listen to the commercial. See you on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough being publicly embarrassed or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay.teachable.com that's mark m-a-r-c dash azulay a-z-o-u-l-a-y dot teachable.com voice america programs are now available on your favorite connected device 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to our final segment here. I want to talk to you about where you are now, because you've had such an eclectic life. We were just talking during the break of going from a medical oncologist to a poet, to an art curator, um, and all starting in, you know, this 1950s in New York with the book One-Legged Mongoose. Can you say more about that trajectory? I know we don't, we don't have a ton of time, but how did you just cruise through all these different lives? I, I, I was sure I wasn't going to medical school. <laughs> so much that I knew, but... I did, and towards the end, I got involved in some research projects, and by age 25, I was running a lab at the National Cancer Institute. By age 30, I was chair of oncology at Boston University Medical Center. Wow. And some of it was loving every minute of it. What I, what I found is I had a chance to make a difference in cancer medicine. And I needed to do that. And the wonderful, important thing about also being a clinician is um, to be able to work with patients one-on-one and really try to make a difference. And I I work crazy hours and I was fortunate to have that life, Mm -hmm. but I never shied away from doing something that I felt I was interested in doing. So in my 40s, I had this idea that I had to write poetry. I can't even say much more than that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't reading a lot. I wasn't very knowledgeable. I signed up for a workshop. I was lucky to get into a 92nd Street Y. And within a year, I had a Yato Fellowship. Within a year and a half, my first book was taken by Northwestern, mm-hmm. and I was out on the road as a poet. And, the, and my books have been used in a lot of medical school curricula. Um, I started collecting art seriously the week I started medical school. I was broke. As soon as I figured out I could get through medical school easily, I got a weekend job. <laughs> <laughs> and I made money and I bought art and I bought stuff nobody wanted. I mean, you have to, to get in the door, but I made my way in and the collection is really well known now. And when I was heading towards wanting to stop practicing oncology, it was an extraordinarily tough life. You know, so everybody who came to me with people, mostly with advanced cancer. A lot of people came to me from around the world who had failed therapy elsewhere. Oh yeah, you're like the last ditch effort. So emotionally, it was 
extraordinarily difficult. And finally, I kept thinking, it's time to go, it's time to go. And as soon as I was able to finally do it, I just, I don't know, one, I just decided all at once to open an art gallery. So I have an art gallery on the Lower East Side of New York, Mark Strauss, and we're busy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my job is to find new people or older people who have been missed. And we're busy and we go around the world with art fairs and our clients around the world. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, that is like almost a dream job for me, something like that, right? Like whether it be art collecting or antiques or picking up like uh, gems and minerals. I mean, something where you travel, you meet eclectic characters, you try to find treasures. Can you say a little bit more? Is there a story from that of, you know, meeting some kooky character or finding, you know, diamond in the rough? Yeah, I mean, every, we've traveled a lot. We've done thousands of studio visits. We don't, I don't think we really saw the cities. We saw studios. Yeah. And they're always in shitty buildings. And the artists are always impoverished. Um, the most challenging piece of art and history we bought was because we were broke. I was finishing medical school. And I just had to buy this painting by Ellsworth Kelly, this American. Now, I didn't know Ellsworth was broke. And he was represented by the most famous American gallery who couldn't sell it. And I bought this painting and it took me, I'd take out a loan, it took three years. And Ellsworth became crazy famous. And for his 90th birthday, Museum Modern Art gave him a big show. And our painting was the centerpiece. And Ellsworth came over to me and said, I was too broke even I was trying to get to visit you to find out who this kid was who bought it. And I, I almost didn't have the money to make the trip to find you. <laughs> and the guy was so famous by then. Mm -hmm. And I think I was lucky to have the painting in my life. And it's still next to my desk in my house after all these years. I've been, I think part of it was being able to take a part of that imaginative process that the artist took to us, you know, to have that invention that we walk past every day, to me was an, an enormous way to live. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. I'm, I'm curious, what do you look for in a painting or an artist when you want to add them to the collection? I have to love it. It has to be something I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. It has to be art that I think has a chance of being durable. The artist has something to say in a way that's refreshing, unique. And I have to, I have to feel very quickly, if that's in my space, I won't be tired of it in six months mm -hmm. or a year. It's going to keep talking to me. It's going to enlighten my life. And it's intuitive, but I've looked at so many tens of thousands of things that I know. It's good for the gallery for most people if we pick to show somebody. <laughs> right. Yeah, you kind of get like a sense you get a, you know, of what is it going to be meaningful. Yeah, I mean, the collection has traveled to many museums. Yeah. So as we're moving towards the end here, I'm curious, Mark, what would you what would you say to our listeners? Some wisdom that you could pass on, right? Something that they could take um, from listening to this episode. The book One Legged Mongoose is an adult book. The kid is the narrator, but adults of all ages have read it. And I, I, I'm just so touched that so many people have loved the book because. I think I'm telling a human story. Mm -hmm. I'm telling a story where my problems were my problems, but it is about endurance. It's about that ability to keep pushing and find a way forward. 
And these two years were able to take me forward and have the courage to do the things that I got interested in doing and never stop. And to do it in a way that we would try very hard not to harm anybody else. And I'm really proud of the book. One of the things I feel like when I closed it and I was ready for it to come out, this is my best. What do you think if you could put into words as part of that secret sauce that helped you keep going, that brought in that endurance? Um, the willingness to look ahead, the willingness to think you can get past it. You'll get past it. There are things that you're going to be able to do. You'll, you'll get to do them. You know, the kind of endurance that, you know, when you're in the midst of it, one thing, I always had, you know, always had the belief that they're going to be, they're going to be things I'm going to love doing. And I'm lucky it turned out that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it paid off, right? The hard work paid off and you got to a, a life that seems like you really love. I do. And you know, I said maybe I was the youngest full professor in the country of medicine, probably the oldest guy to open a major art gallery. Mm -hmm. and it's just bookends. To me, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was a kid and I was a chairman of the department. But I had very clear goals what I wanted to accomplish in cancer medicine. And I, I, think, I think if people believe more in themselves, if they, if they take certain risks, they have an idea they want to learn something, they have an idea they want to write, do it. It doesn't matter if it's not that good to somebody else. You have to do some things for yourself. I think that's a really powerful message that a lot of people need to hear. So as, as we're wrapping up here, can you let people know where they can find you online, where they can pick up the book? Um, they want to learn more I about have, you and your work. Well, my gallery has a website. Of course, Mark Strauss <laughs> is the name of the gallery. But my writing website, Mark J. Strauss, M-A-R-C-J-S-T-R-U-S, and One-Legged Mongoose is really easy to find. Uh, Amazon and any bookstore can get it. And if anybody's interested in all the other kooky things I did, they can go on my website. Great. It's all there. Yeah, there's a lot of kooky things. I encourage our listeners to check that out. Um, it's a lot of really eclectic stuff that you've done over the course of your life. It's, it's pretty impressive. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you would like this episode, please share it on social media. Give us five-star Apple review. Um, really helping to spread this message and getting you know, all these stories out there into the world, I think makes it a better place. So thanks so much for tuning in this week and we'll see you next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.